Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Julie Gunlock, Director of the Culture of Alarmism Project at the Independent Women's Forum. Today I'm here with Angela Logomassini, who is a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and also a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Angela, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me on your show. So today, we're going to be discussing the health of honeybees and bee colonies. Angela, you've written a paper for the Competitive Enterprise Institute called Bee Apocalypse Not, Honeybee Claims Collapse Under Scrutiny, which is a very funny name, um, and it examines this issue. Um, and if something, if it's something we should really be nervous about. I have to tell you, I'm so glad you did this paper, um, which I could tell took so much work and research. But I think it's a really, um, it's a very important subject that a lot of people are concerned about. And yet, those same people, I don't think really know the details or really a lot about the subject. Um, and I, I include myself in that. Um, I, you know, of course, it's, hard not to hear about bee colony collapse and, you know, oh, gosh, the honeybees are suffering. Um, and I, I tell you, many times, um, you know, I read that, uh, you know, the, the bees are dying, the, the bee population is decreasing, bee colony collapse is all because of pesticides and GMOs and chemicals, and I, but there's never any details beyond that. And so I think it's, it's being used as sort of one of these alarmist, Strategies like, oh, you know, we need to regulate this or we need to ban this particular uh, product or chemical uh, because of the bees, and yet it really has nothing to do with that. So, anyway, I know that's a long intro, but I wanted you to give us sort of a brief summary of your paper. And, and if you could kind of describe the current situation regarding honeybees in America. Okay, um, you're absolutely right, Julie. This definitely has a huge alarmist component. And it's an issue that environmental activists have grabbed onto um, to try to pursue another agenda, which is an anti-pesticide agenda. And the products they're going after are actually better for honeybees. And I've talked to beekeepers, um, some of the largest in the country, and they say, you know, in, in their in decades of uh, work in the field and, and as beekeepers who farm their bees out to farmers, um, this is the most benign of the pesticides that we've been using. And in fact, they're not seeing really big impacts, but a lot of the, the maybe some of the hobby beekeepers are concerned. And, and because they're getting the headlines that the environmentalists are bringing up to do on this issue. But the reality is, this is not really about, you know, mankind, and I think this is the image the environmentalists love to portray, the narrative. Mankind is destroying and tampering with nature, and honeybees are suffering. They may disappear. Our food supply may disappear, and this is a huge tragedy created by yet another technology. What they don't tell you is these technologies are used to produce our food and, in fact, to make it affordable to feed a growing world um, population, and the honeybees are not doing as terribly, um, you know, certainly they have challenges, challenges, but not the way environmentalists act. And the main causes of those challenges are not chemicals, but their mother nature. It's the, you know, the diseases that honeybees are facing. You know, we're, they, honeybees are not a native species in the United States. They come from Europe. They were brought here to, to be farmed to produce honey. 
Um, some live in the wild, but they're mostly a domesticated crop, just like cattle. Okay. And, yeah, so farmers farmers are having challenges with that. Let me just go back a few, uh, a, a little bit here and, and ask you to expand on sort of the, uh, this alarmism about pesticides. Um, you know, you, you kind of get the sense um, that farmer, you know, obviously farmers are often um, in the crosshairs of this. Uh, people say, "Oh, farmers they spray their fields with all these chemicals, and then uh, and then the honeybees can't survive it." But really, it has very little to do actually with the pesticides. Um, there's a lot of talk of sort of monoculture, and that there are um, there's a lot, like some honeybees just lack there's a lack of diversity um, in some of the plants that honeybees need to survive. So can you expand a little bit on, like, are they, are they specifically talking about a specific pesticide? Are they, are they naming sort of a specific pesticide that they want to, to ban? Again, I, I, think, I think all the research is showing that it doesn't really have to do with pesticides, but if you, can sh- if you could expand a little bit on who the environmentalists are really blaming or what substance they're blaming. Well, you know, environmentalists, their tactic is always the same. Whether they're, te- they're attacking uh, pesticides or plastic, they go after the thing that's in widespread use. And I think they're, you know, you can guess why they do this. I think they have a distrust of big industry and they're, they go after the biggest products. The products they're really attacking right now, they attack the ones that we used before this, but they're attacking a category of products called neonic, neonicnoids. Uh, big word, easily uh, abbreviated neonics, and they're saying Thank that goodness. these products, yeah, these products are you know getting into the hive and killing the bees, you know, by making them weaker. Um, although their evidence of that is not particularly strong, um, the beauty of neonics is they're what you call systemics. So they they don't have to spray the fields constantly. They can use a whole lot less than they used to of the other chemicals. So it actually has a, a net environmental benefit. They put it on the seed, and the seed is coated with it. They plant the seed. This is how most of it is applied. The plant grows, and when the pest bugs come and bite the plant, you know, the leaves and the stems, the pest the pests die. So it's just targeting the ones that are doing damage. It's not really targeting the ones that come to take the nectar. Um, you know, this is it's used on... Uh, very you know, almonds and fruits and vegetable crops is not used for corn, which is self-pollinating. Um, right. But yeah, you know, so th- that is not really a factor. There's a whole host of factors that affect honeybees that are discussed in the news. But you know, pesticides get the headline when pesticides are the lowest on the list of potential stresses on the honeybees, and the association is very weak between pesticide and you know these pesticides and honeybee health issues. But the real factors are, as you mentioned, uh, these are, again, it's a farmed species. Genetic diversity is a challenge, okay? There's not enough genetic diversity, and, and that makes weaker queen bees and could be challenges. Right. But a really big issue is the food that these bees get. Um, you have ethanol subsidies, so there's more monoculture of corn and things of that nature. That's a nice federal government-created um, incentive there. There's less of the different types of flowers for them to forage on. It's good for bees to have a diverse diet. So the nice thing is there is a solution, and that solution really is not a governmental solution. It's about people, and farmers have an incentive and an interest in doing this, planting those other crops in and around their fields. 
Um, and they will do it if they're not, you know, paid to just plant monoculture, which they, they are with a lot of government subsidies and things of that nature. Um, you know, home gardeners, you can plant a great wildlife garden if you really want to do something. Farming bees of your own, I don't know that that is a solution. Um, I know some people like to do that, and that's fine. But I think more importantly, if you care about nature and pollinators, it's not just honeybees. Our bumblebees do a lot of the work, too, and they're native. Um, those are things that you could do, you know, and I, I do that yeah. myself. Yeah. I have a wildlife garden, and, you know, that's the positive side that environmentalists, you know, they don't really focus on that. They'd rather right. hit the pesticide. What's the sort of situation with the population of honeybees right now? I mean, we hear constantly that, oh, they're dying out, and then there isn't going to be anyone to pollinate the food, and then we're all going to die, and there's this whole cascading effect, right? And, and the environmentalists love to sort of scare you about, uh, about uh, you know, all the, the gloom and doom of, of what's going to happen. And again, they often use this sort of honeybee um, colony collapse disorder. If you could talk a little bit about the sort of condition of honeybees in the U.S. and also worldwide. And then uh, in your paper, what, what I thought was really interesting is how you talked about, you know, there's this all this like, sort of alarmism about colony collapse disorder. And actually, and you know, I, I, wa- I want you to expand on this, but it accounts for a very little, like 7%, 9%, or I, I can't remember the exact figure, um, of the, the problems with the honeybee population. So, again, just kind of give us a, a sense of, uh, of what the population is like and the health of honeybees worldwide. Yes. Okay. Um, you hit on the a factor here. They, the environmental keep hitting the phrase colony collapse disorders as if that's the big issue, and in reality it isn't. Um, it is something that has happened in recent years where, you know, beekeepers go back after winter hibernation and a lot of their hive leaves and doesn't come back to the hive. And for a particular farmer, a honeybee farmer or um, hobby honeybee keeper, it's, it's a scary prospect when a third of your hive disappears. And that makes all the headlines. But as you said, according to UN estimates, that's about 7% of hive losses. Hives, you know, um, and colony collapse disorder describes a very specific phenomenon of them leaving the hive, leaving the queen behind, leaving the male drones behind, the workers leave. They go on strike, and there's honey and an apparently healthy hive, it seems. What would have been a healthy hive. So that's a small percentage. The real issue is honeybees, like you said, all the other challenges, mother nature, um, diseases, and things of that nature. But even those things, again, it's like managing cows, okay? Sometimes they get sick. You have to, you know, employ some new technologies as a farmer to make them better and some new approaches. And that's really what's happening right now. Farmer honeybee keepers are responding, and losses have been less. And, you know, but these challenges remain, and they're, they're largely, you know, mites that feed on the bees and so forth. Overall, population-wise, overall, um, in the U.S., you know, this is what environmentalists do. They're like, we have fewer honeybees in the U.S. today than we did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And that's because honey production has moved overseas. Honeybees are used for two things, to make honey or to pollinate crops. And so the honeybee keepers right now focus on pollination. They take the bees, they bring them to California, 40% of them, they pollinate almond crops, then they move them to another place. So this farming and moving them around is obviously a stress on the bees. But we we don't have fewer bees in the U.S. because we are having problems. We have fewer because there are more elsewhere making honey around the world. In fact, there are a lot more hives globally 
than ever before. It's just a market ebb and flow as to where the hives are located. Some of the more um, like honey production, that's interesting. So honey production has largely gone to Europe is what you're saying. Well, no, it's gone overseas, all around the world. It's gone overseas, all around the world. Okay. Yes. Well, so Europe and the, and the U.S. are making less honey. And so we we have less bees. It's like if you're going to sell less steak, you're going to have fewer cows. It's the same as sure. that phenomenon. It's interesting because now what's become quite popular in addition to sort of keeping, you know, it's all part of this cottage food industry. Everyone sort of wants to be a gentleman farmer. And so you have, you know, people in urban areas keeping chickens or having rooftop gardens. And I've heard a number of my neighbors say that they're keeping honeybees. And so it's interesting how that's another way in which you can sort of help is um, is by raising your own bees, I guess, um, might be one of the ways that you can sort of help the bee population and bring it well, back to the U.S. I would say that... It, if you want to help pollinators, it's better to grow food for pollinators. Sure. If you want to keep bees to make honey, that's fine. But actually, I don't think that is something that's going to save the honeybee. And in fact, yeah. if hobby farmers are not responsible and, and don't understand and don't control diseases, our native bees are going to get more diseases because they're not managed properly. So hobby beekeeping can be a double-edged sword. Um, yeah. I certainly think it's perfectly fine and appropriate, but... People need to be educated on how to do it rather than doing it blindly because they they heard it was the right thing to do. Well, you know, it's interesting. This sort of panic about honeybees really has led to some pretty disturbing public policy moves. Uh, Portland, Oregon just banned pesticides and insecticides on public lands. You know, ostensibly, I mean, at least they're saying in order to protect the honeybees, it seems like those, uh, those, those city officials really, they certainly haven't read your paper and they certainly haven't read, um, and they haven't talked, uh, you know, as you have to these, these beekeepers who really seem to know, um, that this isn't sort of, uh, you know, the disaster it's being made out to be. But again, um, it may have very little to do with actually, you know, they may say it's to, to save the honeybee, um, but it might actually just be to sort of push this environmental agenda, which is, Really, to to ban pesticides, to, and these are these are these are as we know, uh, glyphosate, which is Roundup. You know, it's a very safe um, chemical to use, and um, and yet there's a lot of fear mongering around that one as well. So um, it's it's too bad that a lot of these cities are doing this, and it turns out that that Portland is the eighth city in America to do this. Um, you know, are you seeing more cities? Are these, are these sort of plans on the horizon? Are you seeing more cities planning to do this or states? Well, it's pretty scary. In Europe, um, they have banned them. They put a right. what called a temporary moratorium. And so last year was the first year where we did not have them, and they suffered a lot of crop damage. Farmers are using a lot more of the other types of chemicals, um, so you got higher expenses for them, more environmental damage, um, you know, less food, more expensive food. That's the result of their campaign. Um, Ontario just went ahead, and also they have a ban on them in Canada even, because they have an isolated problem there. I don't, Canada really doesn't have a problem overall. For some reason Ontario does. Maybe somebody's not managing the bees well there. I don't know. But um, it's very scary. The president has a task force that he put together, and they're going to be putting out recommendations to the states. A lot of states are trying to actually work with, you know, create collaborative processes, but now they may be pushing restrictions from the federal level. And EPA has denied new new applications for using these chemicals for new uses. Is this just neonics, or is this sort of... Right now, that's the main focus, but I will tell you, 
it's appropriate we discuss this um, with Earth Day uh, about us here because, you know, this is the beginning of, this is how it all started, environmental plan after the chemical DDT. And, right. you know, without regard to the fact that there were public health uses that fought malaria and a lot of people have suffered because it can be used in very millions, limited, millions, targeted millions ways. Millions yeah. Yeah. It can be used in targeted ways to save millions of lives, but activists have really, they tried to get an international global ban, um, but right. failed because public health officials stepped up and said, you know, this is a chemical that has minimal, the only impact on humans it has is it saves lives. You know, in wild, right. you know, in wildlife settings, you know, we could, it's a different story, but it can be used without any adverse impact on wildlife. Right. Used it appropriately. Used, used appropriately. Yeah. It can, it can be, save it can be humans. Used. Yeah. Babies, yes. mostly. Right, babies. Yeah. So it's the so, same okay. battle, different different chemicals, same battle. And they're even they're even making similar uh sort of claims about it and this you know, the two issues they've been trying to link them, environmentalists. You know, I'm wondering if you know, you said you talked to several beekeepers, you talked to sort of, you know, um, you know, several very, you know, large uh, beekeeping sort of operations about this who sort of recognize that neonics is not they're not the problem, pesticides are not the problem. You know, yes, yes, monoculture is a problem, but that can be managed. And, and again, you were sort of reassured by these people who said, look, we're managing, we recognize it as a problem. We, we are managing it. We think many of the claims are overblown. And, and there are reasons, um, you know, there are reasons that besides, uh, or that have nothing to do with neonics or pesticides. So, you know, how local are these beekeepers sort of independently? I mean, I think it's great that you are putting out a paper and that other groups are following this, but, you know, how local are the actual beekeepers in sort of pushing back against these radical environmentalists who, let's face it, could, they don't, you know, I'm not sure they, you know, I, I, you know, if they really cared about the bees, they would actually try to get to the facts um, rather than using this as sort of a way to further their agenda. So how, how active are the beekeepers on this? Well, here's the thing. What I did is I, I looked at the data and I looked at the science. And after the and I talked to some people beforehand, and I've read a lot of this. One guy, Randy Oliver, who's a beekeeper, who put a lot of great stuff on his website about this issue, saying, "Hey, people, calm down." But there, you know. And then after I put the paper out, I got more feedback from beekeepers. You know, some of them don't agree with me, but the ones that were that are really the ones that are larger and that are been doing this for a long time prefer to have neonics rather than the other pesticides. At least that's what I'm hearing. And a lot of them do not want to speak up because they, you know, they get attacked. They don't want to be in the yeah. media limelight. So there are different categories of people. There's a lot of smaller beekeepers that really don't have that sort of commercial stake in the industry and right. really may not understand. They don't, you know, they're not interacting with farmers so much. They're keeping smaller amounts, maybe even in their yard. And a lot of those guys are more vocal you know, it's easy to be vocal when you really don't have anything to lose. Right. And some of them may have their own agendas, you know, that are more political. But, you know, the data speak louder than anything else. If you review the studies, the associ- there are no associations between where neonics are used and where there are problems. None, not really. And the data suggesting that, you know, they do these lab tests where they basically poison the bees and the bees get disoriented. They're not relevant. So when they actually yeah. measure bees in the field and they measure what pesticides are in the, in the hive, which is really most important, it's not neonics that's an issue. Now, beekeepers themselves, and people don't realize this, they actually apply chemicals to the hives, the beekeepers, and they yeah. have to because that's how they destroy the mites. These are different pesticides, but those are the ones that appear in the hive. 
so when environmentalists say, oh, there's pesticides in the hive at high levels, and then they say, and we need to ban agrochemicals, they're two separate issues. The ones used in the hive are not used in the field. Right. They're used in the hive for a reason. So, <laughs> you know, it's one um, researcher said it's like chemotherapy. We know it's not good, but the alternative is to completely lose our hives. Well, so, I think one thing that, no, that you know, that, Amer- that uh, many Americans, many consumers don't really always put together is that these kind of regulations, like Portland, Oregon, and the eight other cities in America who have banned um, these very, very safe pesticides, frankly far safer than a lot of the older ones, um, is that it does, as you said, it, it leads to crop loss. When there is crop loss, there is a scarcity of, of these food items. And so the prices go up. I think people need to understand, look, everybody, of course, cares about the bees. We need to look for real solutions that will really help the bees and not start pay, pay, passing these sort of, you know, citywide and statewide regulations that won't do a dang thing. The only thing that it will do is, is, is cost you at the, at the grocery store. So these are the costs. These are the economic costs of these sort of silly public policy ideas. And I, I think that it's really important that we, we make that connection. You mentioned earlier, Angela, I'm going to wrap this up, but you mentioned earlier what we can, you know, some of the things that you do, but, you know, what, what can we do to help the honeybees besides trying to push back on the alarmism? I think that's step one. But you mentioned some of the things that you plant in your home garden and some other items. If you could just repeat that, that would be great. Yeah, um, basically anybody with a flower pot or a piece of, a piece of land can, you know, plant things that the honeybees like. And you can just research online. There's a lot of different flowering plants that are very useful to honeybees, salvia, um, a bee balm, which I put in my yard, and they will come flocking, and you'll have a lot of diversity in your yard. And it ends up being beautiful, too, and not just good for honeybees, but good for native bugs and um, hummingbirds and moths and all kinds of things. So, you know, people who really care will take proactive approaches. People who have a different thing will go to the political, a different agenda will go to the political process. And that's my big beef with environmentalists because they are always turning to the government rather than really just focusing. If, if they focus on just doing good and funding, you know, conservation and private efforts, we would have a lot more, a lot more environmentally sound world and a lot less yeah. Stupid and expensive public policy. Yeah, I think there is, there really is something to be said about um, you know uh, passing information, useful information to people. People would help. People are concerned about this, and I think if people learned that they could actually do things, like you said, small plot of land or a flower pot, if they could do something to help. Um, that would be more effective than these ridiculous citywide bans on, on you know, totally safe neonics and other pesticides. Um, you know, that would be a lot, a lot more, um, you know, useful, and certainly it would, it would help the honeybees, which is um, what the goal that sensibly everybody has. So um, I, I'm really glad that you came on and shared this. This is a, you know, a complicated issue. Um, it's really important. You can find Angela's. Uh, excellent Beepocalypse Not uh, report on the CEI website. She's also written uh, quite a bit. She's a fellow for the Independent Women's Forum, uh, continues to write on a number of issues for the IWF, so check her all of her writing out at iwf.org on the, on the Inkwell. Um, Angela, thanks again for joining us. It was great talking with you, Julie. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in for another podcast. 
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.